0: We have over 650 people in our organization. It's a lot of people to to take care of it's a lot of people to defeat and you know over the um we built this team during the pandemic when B was just completely decimated and we were one of the mm-hmm. ones one of the lucky ones who were able to hire a bunch of people you know give them livelihood and I, i've come to like treat them as family and you know that keeps me going every day they need me to be at the top of my game they need me to keep inspiring them they need me to motivate them they need me to raise funds they need me to i work for them basically <laughs> right
1: as Uber founder Travis Kalanick prepared to leave Uber's board of directors in 2019, he was already hyping his next venture, a startup called Cloud Kitchens that rents out space to restaurants for delivery-only services like DoorDash. He predicted at the time that the startup would be bigger than Uber. Microsoft came in as an investor, part of their $850 million funding round that closed in November 2021 that valued the LA-based company at apparently $15 billion. Now while we await to see that story unfold on the other the other side of the wall is Kimberly Yao, a seasoned F&B operator turned founder of CloudEats that takes a different approach to Cloud Kitchen. Founded in 2018, her company today is the largest Cloud Kitchen company in the Philippines, poised to become the largest in Southeast Asia thanks to its proprietary tech, strong brand and competitive unit economics. This week, we chat with Kim on the challenge of scaling 1 to 100 and how each stage of growth requires a different version of a CEO. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact, purpose, and returns, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen Spellings. Before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you. Smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. This way, you'd be the first to know of new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends so we can amplify more stories built on Grit in the US and Asia venture ecosystem, and that we can all keep making billion-dollar moves together. Now, let's get started.
2: Well, you know, I I actually think this is a a good way to start. You know, you're ending the year 2022 was really tough for many of us, right? And and of course, as we head into what many believe is already here, the recession and and market headwinds and things like that. How how are you feeling about this year?
0: You know, I think it's been a long year. Um, We've been very busy. At the same time, it's been a year of self-reflection, I would say. So when you run so fast to try to achieve something, you just keep going at the speed of light. And then you kind of forget about, you know, looking in inward and just trying to understand what happened was that the best approach and, and all of these things go into your head and i think now that we just close our office today and we're taking a break for the next uh, 10 days and it just gives you some time to just stop and, and think and you know the year has been long the year has been great we did two fundraising rounds in the last 12 months not one but two and i think it's it's a great achievement but yeah there, there's more to do next year and i'm looking forward to it congratulations on all that i mean this Despite um, how tough, you know, we as
2: VCs, as investors are, are definitely in the belief that the fundraising winter is already here. And the fact that you were able to do that uh, despite the headwinds, I think is a testament to uh, what your business is, is set out to do. Right. So fingers crossed there. I mean, of course, with entrepreneurs, you know, it's always up and down, down and then up again. And, and you never know. Uh, but That's let's right. get started, you know, in true billion dollar moves fashion before we dive a little bit deeper into. But like give us a little bit of context of uh, who Kim Yao is and, you know,
0: what sort of is pivotal in getting you to who you are today? Wow, it's a very loaded question. Um can spend a lot of time on that, but just, you know, to make it quite short. So I guess you can say I'm an entrepreneur at heart. Uh, I've built many businesses over the last uh, 15 or years or so, and I spent over a decade uh, focused in F&B, as in food and beverage. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I guess throughout the companies that I've built and scaled, the one recurring theme was food and beverage, which I'm very passionate about. I'm not a chef, uh, but I love cooking and eating. So more than anything, what I love about being an entrepreneur in this industry is I get a chance to take a very traditional uh, industry like food service into the future. I would say that there are not many industries left that haven't been disrupted and food service is definitely one of them. So my entire career has been in, in this industry. Both on the brick and mortar side, which is the retail side, as well as on online and the tech-enabled side. When I started Boozy, so Boozy is a it's a liquor delivery company uh, here in the Philippines. And when you think about it, the food, beverage, and food service industry is is massive, right? However, it's also, you know, highly traditional and it's one that tech hasn't really penetrated yet. You know, it's a service industry, it's very high touch, it involves a lot of manual processes. It's really notorious for having thin margins and it requires so much capital to scale. And when when we built CloudEats, we wanted to change that. So over the last three years, we built this, you know, hyperscalable cloud kitchen model, um, which we think is is just bringing this industry into the future so yeah i think that you know in a few short words it's, it's pretty much where i came from what i'm passionate about and where we're at, at clubbyes today
2: yeah and and if I may you know I, I like to dive a little bit deeper in the way that maybe you, you haven't spoken before but if you think about what really brought you
0: to f and b and when you say it's your passion how did you arrive at that yeah so i i grew up in restaurants um my parents always had restaurants growing up I did my homework in the restaurant I literally you know went there after school and I spent a lot of time there and i think it just became like my second home like at some point in time maybe when i was five to eight because my parents were at the restaurant so often i pretty much lived there right it was like my living room (laughs) um so i think that you know growing up just made me understand how food makes people happy how food you know fills your stomach literally but it also fills fills your heart and people come together and food just makes people happy so i wanted to reimagine food for today's world which is for delivery right so And then the process of how I arrive at, at Cloud Eats is, um, you know, quite interesting because I went from being in traditional food and beverage, which is literally building restaurants, building concepts, like physical stores. And then I started this, um, liquor delivery company, right? Which is just, you know, mainly beverage. And then it kind of comes like full circle with Cloud Eats with, with food and beverage and, and technology. And I think it's just a, it's a great progression, I I would say. And I, I I got lucky in, in that sense because it's not always, easy to do something that you love but in this case I I guess I was quite fortunate in terms of that. That is an interesting point and and,
2: uh, you know to arrive at your passion and actually make it you know your career it's not as easy and as you said you know with F&B it is really tough right the margins and Every other day there's competition and now you're going into cloud kitchens as, you know, big guys on on the forefront. What keeps you going? I mean, when it gets really, really hard and what
0: keeps you sticking to the fact that, okay, your passion could actually be your career? I think, you know, what keeps me going is the opportunity. That's mm-hmm. quite clear to me. If you were able to take the opportunity out there and convert that into you know, an action plan, convert that into a strategy, I think you know, there's unlimited opportunities in that sense. So if you have like one, cl- one kind of cloud kitchen model today, it's so easy to come up with something else, innovate, and then the harder part is actually making sure that you follow through on those concepts right? or on, on that theory. So for me, one, that's one. The other thing is the people. So today we have over 650 people in our organization. It's a lot of people to to take care of. It's a lot of people to feed. And we built this team during the pandemic when F&B was just completely decimated and we were one of the Mm -hmm. ones one of the lucky ones who were able to hire a bunch of people you know give them livelihood and i've come to like treat them as family and you know that keeps me going every day they need me to be at the top of my game they need me to keep inspiring them they need me to motivate them they need me to raise funds they need me to i work for them basically (laughs) right so my job is to give them the tools resources to succeed and they form part of the business without them the company wouldn't be there so i think you know more than anything it's the people as well
1: Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform with an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit hubspot.com service to learn more. Yeah, love that. Love that. And, and- Certainly speaks to your service-based leadership in many
2: ways, which is uh, somewhat common in Asia. Uh, you know, it's different yeah. from the American style of me, uh, <laughs> me, me, right? You know, I yeah. do this. I achieved all this. Which just, I think, you know, something I personally admire. Tell me, I mean, you know, from Boozy, what what happened in that chapter? I mean, that was, uh, you know, focused on alcohol delivery specifically, you know, to your door. Uh, what did you learn in that chapter before you moved on to Calvita?
0: Yeah, so that was a, it started as a side hustle, right? You know, we had a lot of connections with the supply uh, in, in terms of the liquor distributors, in that sense, with the brands. I mean, this was 2017, so it's, it's a while back. And in the Philippines, at least at that time, there was no way that you could buy liquor on demand. So the idea was how could we make liquor accessibility quick? How could we, you know, bring the party to people, basically, right? So it was a very convenient um driven play and we thought that liquor was a very sticky category um so once you get them in you know they'll always come back and it was one of the e-commerce categories that nobody else was focusing on because there was like generalists out there the grocery they were already doing all of these things but there was no one focusing on a, a specialty and we thought that with the supply that we had we, the access to the supply would be a great um business model to start so it started as a high side hustle you know we put in like twenty thousand dollars we were four founders and you know, a year after that, it became something that other big companies were interested in. So you know one of our one of the people who contacted us was uh, the owner of uh, a large conglomerate in the Philippines who owned the biggest uh, liquor or spirit company basically, right? So when these guys come calling and they say, hey, we want to take a look at your business. And I'm like, well, hold on. Um, you know, this this is something that is very interesting to us, um, but well, what's, in it, what's in it for us, right? And I was very young back then. So, you know, the agreement was, you know, they would come and invest. Um, they would help us to scale the business up. And I think that's what I learned. So to your question, right? What did I learn in that process? I guess mm-hmm. it's not enough to want to run a business. It's not enough to start a business and to have passion, but it's also important to learn how to scale. Because you know, if you go from zero to one, that's maybe easier. But from one to one hundred, that's when you need to level up. Your skills change, the attitude that you have, and the behavior you have. You know, on a day-to-day basis, midterm, long-term, it just changes. You need to change in order to, you know, have a business that is uh, of a larger scale in that sense. So before that, Mm. all my other businesses were very entrepreneurial, quite scrappy, very resourceful. It was really my own, right? And this time I had to work with three other people. I had to work with a large conglomerate who had, you know, governance, you know, all of these like, and it was a learning process. I think it was great. It was, you know, how do you you go from one to 100 and 100 to 1,000? And I think that helped me with my second startup. Which is which is cloud eats because then I didn't have to start from scratch and I didn't have to start from like a lower base because I understood what big companies like like these guys were looking for when they wanted to invest in a young startup.
2: Yeah, and, and that's a very important point actually. Uh, notably, one of the founders that I had on early on on the podcast sold his company for you know close to a billion dollars, and one of the challenges he said he faced was scaling himself. Like yeah. he actually realized, you know, the skill sets was very different. And, and he looked at his co-founder and his co-founder was able to be agile and adapt. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like, you know, because you were sort of on the ground and you were experiencing this, uh, give us some, some, you know, give
0: us an, an example of what this looks like between zero to one and one to a hundred. You know, I guess for me, because it's been three years since we launched the company. So it's like, I think about it as year one, year two and year three, and I had to be a different Sort of CEO in year one versus year two versus year three. At the beginning, it was it was all me. Right, you have to do everything yourself, call everybody yourself, sign every check yourself, and you have to make sure that the wheels are are turning. Right, so it was a lot of on the ground stuff. I had boots on the ground, and everybody needed me for everything. So the responsibility then was, you know, get the right people on board, or at the time, anybody who would want to work for you, right? And then, you know, all of these. People that you have on board because it's a new company, fresh company, you'd have to make sure that um, you're there for them, you support them. And then when you go in the second phase of the company, when you know proof of concept is done, great, people invested in your company. Now what? Right? Now you have a bunch of money and how do you spend it? So the first thing that we really spent on is like a better management team. Then you have mm-hmm. PR, then you people know you know a little bit about your company, then you can hire experienced people better people like a management team to help you put things in place right and this is like the beginning of scale so at this point in time it's like how do you train the trainers how do you train the people who are supposed to do things right so then you become like a guidance uh, like a guidance counselor then you become like a like a trainer a coach basically and then as we go to the third year, the number of people just completely explodes. Um, at some point in time, it's like you hire people who you don't even meet. You know, you, you forget about how many people there are in each team and, and there's just too many people, right? But I think at that point in time, when you get to that point, it's just, it's just physically impossible to directly have a you know, relationship with each and every single person. Then you need to be like a motivator. You need to be a, an inspiring um, role. So you, then you become the CEO motivator, CEO insp- inspiration. Right? because you're you're there with six hundred other people who are looking at what is she gonna say next? What are we gonna do next? Like what is the evolution of our vision, right? And and I think, you know, throughout those stages, you're right. I had to become a very agile leader, um, as the requirements, you know, change very quickly, right? And you know, sometimes it scares me, um, to be honest, because it's a big responsibility, right? But at the same time, it excites me also because I'm willing to change, I'm willing to learn. I think as long as you're open to What's next? As long as you're open to the unknown, then there's an opportunity for you to improve yourself as well. Love that. And so you were in Boozy for how long and, and how big did it grow into? So two questions in one there. Yeah. Um, so we started in 2017. The business grew quite quickly in a short period of time. So by 2019, we um, had been acquired. Like a majority of boozy had been acquired. I was the CEO for two years. And then after that, by the beginning of 2019, they wanted to um, you know, change management. They, they had a couple of people that they put in place and also i I had met my uh, my now co founder, and you know he pitched me this crazy idea, and we can talk about it later on, but I was quite attracted to that f and b tech model, which I didn't know much about at that time, but he you know pretty much convinced me to to start this this new venture, and that was in uh, March of twenty nineteen so I was at woozy yeah. for two for two years, you know th- that was sort of like my my jump off point to Yeah. So in that two years,
2: you said it grew uh, rather significantly in a short amount of time. Did it? Did did now cover? And of course, I I, actually this is remiss, but let's talk a little bit about Philippines as well. So were you delivering Mm -hmm.
0: across the entire country already by then, or no? um, We were delivering it in the north northern part of the country, which is where the capital is located. So Metro Manila is a very big, densely populated city. There's 12 million people in in the capital, um, and that alone was like a monumental task. And today, um, Buzi is in the north and in the center, a central part of the Philippines. And we cover about, I would say, like 18 million people. So 18 million people have the opportunity to order um, on on Buzi. So in the main city, it's on demand. So if you order now, it arrives in like 60, 70 minutes. And then in the further parts, it would be like same day. And also for
2: context, of course, because we have North American listeners, Philippines is full of (laughs) islands, right? So it's not as common. I mean, you know, these, these actually i will say as americans and it's you know we're we're, um close to christmas and i will say prime delivery it's it's like the joke that the comedian says you know you can literally be in your bed snap your fingers and then there you have toilet paper a hammer this that so we take it for granted but he tells a little bit about where philippines is in in sort of the e-commerce delivery space
0: we do have 7,107 islands plus or minus 10 depending on the tide um short anecdote on that if you think about having to do logistics in a place, in a country with 7,000 islands, it's a nightmare, right? And monumental tasks to guys like, so here there's, there's um, a company called Lazada, which is pretty much like the Amazon of Southeast Asia. And they took on that challenge and they launched seven, six or seven countries on, in one day. And they put like CEOs in every country and they said, we are going to build Amazon of Southeast Asia. And they did. So today it's Lazada and Shopee are the two huge um marketplace uh, players here in uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, e-commerce space, I would say it start, started booming really in 2016, 2017. Internet penetration was quite low back then. Smartphone penetration was also quite low and it completely changed when the, you know, China smartphones that were like 100 bucks Hundred dollars each just started flooding the market and it became quite accessible to have a, a phone who can that can download apps uh, that can connect to the internet like on demand and that, that changed the game everyone in retail had to adapt and everyone had to have an online uh, you know uh, implementation arm traditional companies started talking to guys like Lazada and say so how do I sell online and, and I think that was the time when we also started boozy and you know even though it's a niche um vertical it was basically beverage for alcoholic beverages at that time. It just showed as well how if you do it right, then you can definitely penetrate that market and scale up.
2: Yeah. And, and it's fascinating that you say it's 2016, 2017. And, uh, you know, Lazada, I guess taking a little bit of a step back as well was, of course, by the Rocket Internet Brothers, right? Yes. You know, this is a strategy that really, I think, changed Southeast Asia in a large way and and Asia as well, right, where they came in. And, and this leads in actually to your co-founder, which is now the next chapter I want to get <laughs> into. Uh, Yako <Yacofo laughs> was from His yes. Panda. Which was right. a Rocket Internet company. I mean, he came in, um, you know, pretty much as a as many of these Rocket Internet guys do. Uh, very guy heavy at that point in time. I, I will say yep. it might have changed now, but these guys that basically just graduated had MBAs, no real work experience, but were given a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. to you just figure it out. And you met him at a time where he was. Exiting Food Panda and drew you this idea. Tell us a little bit about that and and what convinced you to jump ship, I guess, as you were exiting <laughs>
0: anyway. Um, boozy. You know, to be honest, I think it was a big blind leap of faith at that point mm-hmm. in time so I met Jacopo through Inaj Inaj was the former CEO of Lazada if you think about the three of us it's like the holy trinity so there's e-commerce there's F&B and there's food delivery it's like the perfect triangle for a cloud kitchen business right and so Inaj was was quite um, occupied with another project at that time so he said why don't you guys you know meet you know, talk about this concept that Jacopo and I have and see if you want to come and, and execute and, and you know be, be CEO right and I said okay no one wants to do it and they're like. Like, oh, because Inaj had this—you um, know—he started this VC, and then Jacopo was still in Food Panda. So I said, "Okay, well, if the if you don't want to leave Food Panda for this concept, then maybe it's not that good, right?" And he said, "No, no, no, it's not like that." Uh, um,
2: question.
0: <laughs> right? I mean, it's like so. So, why do you want me to to do it? Well, uh, how about you? Right? You know, our agreement was that I would start the business, and when it reaches a certain point, then we would, um, then he would leave Food Panda and come join me full time, right? So at that point, you know, I had just exited Boozy. I was looking for my next thing and I said, okay. And then Inaj was like, okay, since you are starting the business, you be CEO. I said, okay, sure. I can do that. Don't worry about it. And the agreement that I had with Jacopo was when we reach 100 orders a day, which was, you know, like a magic number in my mind at that time, then you leave Food Panda and you come and join. So he said, okay, deal. Then I said, so, you know, based on information that you have and whatever, when do you think this is going to happen? He goes, probably six to eight months. So I said, okay, I can do that. That's fine. Um, Let's see how it goes. So it was like, like I said, a blind leap of faith. You know, I, I get everything going. We find our first cloud kitchen and I literally had to do everything myself. So I was walking in this industry, talking to everybody who would, rent out, you know, a place for crazy people who want to do a 24-7 cloud kitchen that never shuts down. Finally found one, launched the business. And the thing is, in six or seven weeks, we were doing 100 orders a day. So then I go to Yakopo wow. and I go, oh, so what now? <laughs> right? He goes, okay, well, that deal's a deal. So, you know, let me put in my my 90 days and I guess the rest is history. But I guess at that point in time, he you know just wanted some comfort in his decision because he wanted to be like more of a, like a grassroots entrepreneur, right? Like to start really something of his own. Um, And I think he had a lot of experience from his Food Panda and Rocket Internet time that he wanted to bring to something that, is of his own and that we can start together so yeah so he joined me in october of 2019 which was like a couple of months after we started the business and yeah we're, we're still here it's it's been a wild ride
2: yeah yeah and kim you know you, you're, you're skiing over this but how did you i mean it was a blind leap of faith but you knew enough as an entrepreneur that first of all the idea was sound i suppose that that was mm-hmm. potential we need to talk a little bit about cloud kitchens that not everybody yeah. understands as well the concept of but it was the idea, and then it was the person. How did you evaluate this? Because I think we were talking a little bit early in the prelude that you know choosing your partner is the yeah. most important decision that you'll make. I mean, in personal life and in business, right? So, so how yeah. did you
0: decide? Okay, uh, and you hardly took a break, right? After Boozy, a couple of months, I think two, two months, and then I just jumped back into it. <laughs> How did I decide? So obviously I, I trusted Inaj uh, a lot. Inaj is the one who introduced the two of us. Um he was one of the the leaders in in the tech scene in, in uh in the Philippines back then. And it was very small, right? There were not many um founders, there were not many startups back then compared to now, I guess before there were like a handful. Like if we do a tech startup meet, I would be the only female and there would be like you know 10 other guys there. So it was a very different scene back then. And we all knew each other, right? So I think the opportunity to work with Inaj and and Jacopo appealed to me a lot because I, even though I started Buzi, I wasn't in the big tech seat, right? I wasn't rocket internet, like unlike the both of them. um So I think that, you know, what convinced me was that I knew I had tons of stuff to learn from them, right? It was a, it was like a, they had the Bible for how to build a tech startup and scale it up and, and fundraise. And they basically sold me this idea and I said, okay, let's do it. Right. And, you know, at that point in time, I always knew that, hey, even if this doesn't work out, there's always something else that I could do. Um, because I was always an entrepreneur. So if I build something and it fails, I could always build something again as compared to, hey, if I build something, if I join this company and it doesn't work out, oh no, I'm disgraced and maybe other people won't hire me, right? But because I'm a builder, I always knew that even if this doesn't work out, I can do something again some other time, right? So I always, um, I I had that confidence, but at the same time, like you said, the business model, it was so relevant to me because when I had restaurants before, when I was managing like a hospitality uh, company, you would invest a lot of time, capital, training, resources into something physical, and it would take you a lot of time to recover that investment. And, you know, the, the, the turnover rate of these concepts were very high, at least in the Philippines, right? At the same time, the like mortality rate of, of restaurants, I guess everywhere on the world is very high. So if you open a restaurant... It's like, you know, 65% chance it doesn't work out in the first year, right? So it's it, the industry is very notorious for that. And the concept just appealed to me so much because it fixed a lot of pain points that I had gone through for over 10 years, right? It's like, put in, you know, a, a bunch of capital into this place and no one shows up, right? And then what do you do? You sunk all of your time and effort into this project, you build the place for six months and then people don't like the concept. People don't like the food and then you have to shut down, right? And that has happened to me, you know, a lot of times in the past. And I think that this Cloud Kitchen concept just just fixed a lot of those, you know, pain points in terms of scaling up an F&B business. So I was very interested, to say the least, um, because of that, and also the opportunity to learn from the both of them. Tell us about this Cloud Kitchen and how it's, I mean, it's exploded, I, I will say, in the pandemic.
2: Uh, I mean, I was just tuning into uh, Ketopi as well that that started in Dubai. Um, I mean, of course, we know in, in the U.S., uh, Uber, Uber Eats, DoorDash, uh, what else, GrubHop, and that has a whole story. Into Food Panda, Rocket Internet, and so on and so forth. But it's it's a huge business that has mm-hmm. just
0: exploded. Tell us about how Cloud Kitchen works. Yeah. So our model of Cloud Kitchen is a bit different from, I guess, what you know you're used to in North America. So I mean, the whole industry started because of Travis Kalanick creating this company, literally called Cloud Kitchens, right? So he's built the company that was the namesake of the industry, and you know, the, the idea that he had was was quite simple, right? He took a large space, he subdivided it into smaller. Like pocket kitchens, and he would lease them out to restaurants who didn't want to build their own um, facility if they wanted to expand to different locations, right? And I think that's great, but then you need a lot of capital because you need to fit out large spaces, um, and then your, you know, your your issue would be uh, occupancy, right, and performance of your of the tenants that you don't control, right? So I thought that, you know, that was interesting, but it's not the model that we wanted to do. And then, like you mentioned, there are these guys like Kitopi who took that one step further and said, hey, apart from the real estate, I also want to sell the, the service, which is the people cooking the food and also the technology. Right, so they basically go to third-party brands or restaurants, and they say, "Hey, if you want to expand to Dubai, Qatar, Doha, anywhere in the Middle East, you can come to Kitopi. We do everything for you. Just, you know, give us the recipes. We sign an NDA, and we'll control all of your, we'll optimize all of your online uh, food delivery operations, which is smart, right? Um, But at the same time, you also need a lot of capital, which we didn't have at that point. So we said, okay, what if we build these cloud kitchens? We control the infrastructure." But what if we build the brands as well, right? Which is um, was not very popular back then for a couple of reasons. But I guess in emerging markets like the Philippines and Vietnam, where we're at, people are more open, I guess, to trying new things. So if you look at um, the, the landscape in the in the F and B industry in the Philippines, if you, you know, ask people what burger, like the first thing that comes out comes up in your mind when you say burger, you'd be surprised at how many people don't say McDonald's or how many people don't say Burger King, right? Mm. It's just a a very fragmented industry because people are very curious about trying new things and there's a lot of local players and local heroes, right? So given that you know landscape, we said, why don't we create the brands as well? Because then we can control all the inputs so that the outputs are, are 100% covered or controlled by, managed by us, right? So all of the brands that we have in our cloud kitchens today, we develop them ourselves from concept to menu to what they look like on the platforms to pricing, so everything is basically controlled by us. And I think that that's one of the reasons why you know productivity, the efficiency levels are quite high for us. Because if you're a cook in our kitchen, you cook for all of the brands we have. And today in the Philippines, it's 40 brands. So there's four zero brands being cooked in one location. As compared to if you're in a, a cloud kitchen in the, in the U.S., there's a 10 square meter space for brand A. 10 square meter space for brand B. And those spaces you know, are mutually exclusive, right? They don't have any shared resources, whether it's people or equipment, they're completely separate, right? So if you think about productivity uh, or efficiency, it's not very high. So for us, we layered the brands on top of the infrastructure, which is the cloud kitchen, and now we have these cloud restaurants, right? So it's really a hybrid cloud restaurant, cloud kitchen model. I don't think anyone calls it cloud restaurants. Maybe only we do, but it's, it's just a, <laughs> a, a a cute term for for like virtual restaurants, basically. So the the restaurants that we have are are fully online. They're um, digitally native in that sense, and they they exist on the food delivery platforms where you know they're optimized for search and uh, we we understand how the algorithms work especially with Jacopo's experience in food pandas so so yeah it's it's a lot of it's a lot of work um but i think it's a winning model especially here and in this part of the world where like i mentioned the the food landscape is quite um unique
1: now hold that thought Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia, CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay. Jitsu living entrepreneur and co-founder of RocketBook. he talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a shark tank flop but ended with a 50 million dollar exit you know that's our jam listen to it talking too loud wherever you get your podcast that, that actually that's a great
2: point that i didn't think about that the brand loyalty of course is, is very important and the fact that because one of the questions i had was you know what stops from a a McDonald's from you know just doing a version of this right because they they have all the data. I mean we all know by now everything is data driven, so they know what we're putting out there. Um, and and I guess to your point, one of it is that Filipinos and and a lot of Southeast Asians are just hungry, uh, literally, but hungry for yeah. more choice and, and variety and, yeah. and not glued to the big brands. Which as well, uh, many don't know this, but in in Asia it's actually marked up right it's almost like a premium brand to to it is a premium brand. A it's not a fast McDonald's. food
0: yeah it's not like u.s fast food price i guess to your question you know maybe one other thing that stops them or restricts them limits them like these big brands like mcdonald's burger, burger king from doing something like this is they're just a very big company and a small move that they would like to make takes them a long time and a titanical effort to do right so if you think about um, new product launches. There was um, a Sakura milk tea. It was a beverage that McDonald's launched. And when we spoke to somebody who worked on the McDonald's launch of this, it took them like eight months to develop a plan and implement this plan to basically launch one beverage, right? I mean, it's it's a great beverage, I must say. But at the same time, the agility of these companies, because they're just so big, is very limited. Um, so for us, if you ask me, you know, how many brands do we launch every month, it's like you know eight right and and um we iterate um very quickly. if you ask me how many dishes we launched, then you know we'll we'll spend the whole day talking about it but but it it's, it's the the idea is basically we're quite agile, right, so we use our resources to test, we have a lot of hypotheses and and the testing is. Um, is quite exciting actually because then you let the market tell you what they like, what they don't like, and it's fast. It's like an accelerated brand building process versus if you are guys like McDonald's, then you go to Nielsen and Nielsen does this whole expensive long study, and then you know, it's, it's a really long process, right? Which, you know, think at that scale they need and at that, you know, at, at that opportunity works for them. But I guess as a startup who is like you know um, trying to get things going very fast then we have a different approach to it
2: inefficiency is one that you're solving for and of course because it's so fragmented in southeast asia this efficiency and convenience is amplified right uh that Mm -hmm. people definitely see the value of it versus i don't know in the in the u.s where you know the supply chain the roads are are not as as crazy as it is Mm -hmm. in southeast asia how is your price point is it also cheaper
0: would you say for yeah the way that you're selling things, yeah so one of our you know one of the things that we value is that we we position our brands as having high value for money. So to your question, um if you look at like Shake Shack, for example, here sells uh, a burger for like a chicken burger for five six dollars, our chicken burger is at two fifty right two dollars fifty. We are able to give you a high quality you know very similar burger for half the price. That's one example. If you take, for example, Salad Stop again, another I think quite important example, they sell a Caesar salad wrap for eight bucks, and I remember this because I just bought one the other day. It's quite good, Um, but at the same time, who can afford eight dollars for a snack at best, right? Or or a lunch uh, like a like a wrap in a country where the average family makes four hundred dollars a month, right? So I mean, who can afford eight dollars for for a Salad Stop wrap? Nobody, right? So what we did was we took everything in Salad Stop and try to you know, replicate that, localize it, and have everything for half the price. Um, so it's really trying to give the highest quality food possible for uh, the best price point. And I mean, we're not trying to say that we're we're cheap. I don't think it, the word is cheap, but I think it's it's high value for money. So you get you get more than what you pay for compared to the other oppor- uh, other um, competitors out there. And I guess the beauty of having a large brand portfolio today, we have forty, as I mentioned earlier, is that we can go anywhere from selling a you know, we have brands that do two dollars average or average basket size. These are like our value brands. So it's like a very simple meals at two dollars, but we also go up to uh, burgers that are at twelve dollars, for example. Right? And because we, you know, again have a high uh, efficiency play, all of these different um, dishes are being cooked in the same place by the same people with the same resources or the same equipment. So whether it's a you know a twelve dollar burger or a two dollar rice bowl. It's being done in the same way, in the same people, and using the same resources, which I think is, you know, quite a good way to really um, maximize the the
2: resources that you have. Love that, and and actually, this is really fascinating. You know, sometimes I I will say I I do uh, cave in to the ease of just having a delivery versus cooking myself quite often, <laughs> uh, especially when it gets hectic. But sometimes, like I question, you know, oh my goodness, this is meant to be Chinese. It doesn't actually taste it must be from a different kitchen that's what it
0: is (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know this whole topic about cooking versus like ordering in it's become so pronounced because of the pandemic right so now that you know the people are coming out of the pandemic everything is sort of coming back to normal I think the convenience of that ordering of food online is not something that is that you can replace anymore It's, it's literally ingrained in people that you can sit at home watch Netflix have a few clicks on your phone and food shows up right and i think that that whole concept is not something that you can erase from people's minds anymore they got so used to it they saw the value of it and sometimes i even tell myself i don't think we're just selling food but we're selling convenience um because you know um you can order from us any time of the day it shows up at your door so fast because our cooking time is so low so it's really a convenience factor that i think is also gives us the edge
2: so what worries you And, you know, I mean, you've got sort of, uh, you know, the shift of behavior as you're talking about, right? So that's a a strong shift of behavior that I don't think we're going back of um, even the brick and mortar businesses because they felt it. right? Mm -hmm. The pandemic was... uh, Really a good thing for your business.
0: What Mm -hmm. does worry you in your
2: expansion as you think about next steps? A
0: couple of things. Uh, I guess one is, you know, circling back to people, right? Because we're a heavily operational business, uh, we require people to scale, although it's not linear. So we don't require as many people as, you know, you think, but we do require manpower to scale, right? And the more people that you have, the more relationships you need to manage and the more complexity there is, right? So I think as we go into our fourth year of business, I have to recalibrate myself again to understand how it's best to approach a large uh, team right apart from people you know i think one of the things also that that i've been thinking about is how to scale our technology it's um at the beginning the technology was a means to an end and now Mm -hmm. that we understand that the tech is something that is more than that know how do we press on that how do we package it in such a way that you know it either Becomes a life of its own, like we spin it off, or it becomes part of CloudEats. and those are the things that we we talk about with our with our investors, with our board. But what scares me is that if we do, you know, start focusing on this tech piece, does it risk, um, you know, having a less focus on our core business today? Right. I think it's just a matter of prioritization in terms of you know how big do you want this technology portion of your business to be versus what you have today, which is you basically. 99.9% of your revenues, right? Which is where you should be focusing on. Uh, because it's attractive to have tech, it's attractive to accelerate tech development, but also it's, it's scary because then it you're one person and you need people to be able to scale. Well, is it what you, I mean, you, you know, this brings
2: me uh, to a question that I often have when I when I speak to entrepreneurs, because obviously in venture, you know, you get the big money when it's SaaS, right? When it's technology, it's no longer technology enabled, but it is a technology platform for other
0: things. But the question that I do ask entrepreneurs is, is, does it take you away from what you actually set out to do? So I've heard that so many times, right? Oh, SaaS multiples are crazy. You should do SaaS. You should find a way to put SaaS in your business. And it, it makes you think about things deeply because on one hand, you have a business that revolves around food which is the demand will never falter, right? People will always eat and it's a stable business and there's a clear path to profitability. But at the same time, you get people telling you, Oh, but you need to build software and you need to do something that is completely out of your comfort zone. And, you know, is not going to make you revenues for the foreseeable future, right? So so those are like two different schools of thought, right? So I guess, you know, what's scary about that is trying to understand where to position yourself. And right now, we do want to try. We do want to understand how far we can go with the tech. But trying to find a balance between that is, I think, now more important than ever. Because when we raised this last round, the understanding was we would start working in the tech So we hired a bunch of developers today, we have 14 of them, and we never had an engineering team before. So then it's another group of people that you need to manage. But it's also exciting at the same time, because when you see their output, it's like, wow, if we had this team before, then it wouldn't have taken us this long to scale. And tech is the power to scale. So putting them together I think is where the, the next challenge is for myself and, and, and Jacobo in that sense.
2: Yeah. And and tell us now about scale. I mean, uh, with your last funding round, uh well, last two, that's gonna, you know, power your focus in sort of doing the, the tech bit of it. But how does this you know, are you looking for, you know, the next fifty brands? Like what, what is the end goal here?
0: It's not looking at looking for the next 50 brands, but it's looking at the current portfolio and seeing which brands could become our hero brands, right? So, you know, if if you're a food group, you would have your your star restaurants or your star brands that would do, you know, uh, where your revenue is concentrated and where your resources are also allocated. And after three years of having these brands incubated, we understand that we have a you know small, a handful of brands that are going to be basically our cash cows, right? They're gonna be our profit centers. You know, understanding. Which brands will yield us the greatest results in terms of customer experience, in terms of product quality, in terms of profits is, is really our next, um, our, our next um, line of thinking. So, you know, people always say, so do you want to build 100 brands, 200 brands, 300 brands? What is it, right? Because for us, there's really no marginal cost to open a new brand. It's like this and that, and you can, you can do that tomorrow, right? You can change whatever you want, name, price, pictures, anything. But I guess we've come to a point where that's not what we want to do. But we want to focus on, you know, building brands that perform well. So we want high-performing, high-impact brands. And instead of actually opening more brands, we'd like to streamline the portfolio and focus on rather few select brands. Yeah,
2: and and what makes a hero brand? I mean, if if I could uh, look at your current mm-hmm. portfolio, which is the one that yeah. has the highest margins from what you've developed
0: yeah well there's a lot of brands so you know in terms of our hero brands there's different ways of looking at it you know what could be our most popular um in terms of sales what could be our most popular in terms of ratings um i guess one of our lead brands is this brand called burger beast not the same as mr beast burger in the u.s we were actually first we can talk about that another time <laughs> we were first um, you yes, we will remember that yeah but it's um I think it's it's a local, you know, it's it's a local hero. So people identify with it as it's something that, you know, a Filipino made, um, and people like to support their own, right? So what we're actually doing with Burger Beast is we're taking it offline, which is quite mm-hmm. interesting. So they're digital native brands. Now they're digital first because um we get a chance to build offline stores for them. Our first offline store for Burger Beast is launching in February. Um, Valentine's Day actually or Feb 15th something like that but it's quite soon and you know the dream is to bring to life these digital brands right and how do we do that it's getting to create a touch point with customers through an offline implementation so i think that's it's it's um it's a good way also of trying to understand how you go from online to offline in a smart way Right? Because then from our whole portfolio of brands, we picked the one which had the highest potential and we basically brought it to life in this store. So I can update you about that. We're, we're quite excited about that. Yeah, I'm excited. February 15th. So we'll, we'll see yes. that. And, and
2: I know you bring <laughs> in influences and celebrities as well right, to help champion yeah. these.
0: You know, I guess another thing about the Philippines is that we're social media addicts in the sense. If you look us up, um, we spend the most time on social media compared to any other country in the world. It's insane. Um, from the last time I checked, it's ten hours on social media, and the US is doing about four hours on social media. So you see the disparity between the how much time we spend on social media, and because of that, I guess the you know marketing power of online leaders, celebrities, and personalities just skyrockets because people are glued to their phones, and, and when they want to eat something, when they want to buy something, whatever these people say on Instagram, you know, pops into your head. It's just the way that the population here works, which is they're very social media driven yeah and it's a young population as well right that's very very young average age is 24 crazy young even younger than vietnam so vietnam average age is about 29 it's a very young population, tech savvy, and again, cuisine curious, which is great for us, right? So um, we have over 13 cuisines in our Philippine portfolio. So everything, Japanese, Chinese, Filipino, Western, everything you can think of. And I think it, it lends well to our business model. Well, Kim, we've covered a lot of ground and I'm
2: excited <laughs> for you know where this is headed, but uh, it is now time for a billion dollar questions. <laughs> What is your synonym of money? Ooh, um, rich. Hmm, okay. What is your
0: biggest failure to date? Oh, wow. Maybe it's, um, you know, as a woman, this this is not a quick answer, but since you asked, um, you know maybe as a woman, I, I don't have a, a family yet and I'm not getting any mm. younger. So I think that's one of my biggest failures. Yeah. Wow, okay. This deserves some commentary, but it is a billion dollar <laughs> questions. I've got to keep myself in line here. Uh, what is your Highest high? Highest high. I'd have to say when I'm eating something that I love. I I just, you know, have a high when I I have something that I absolutely love or something that I haven't tasted in a long time. And it just gives me a a physical high. What you wish you knew when you were younger and getting started. Oh, wow. Um, That it was not going to be easy. And it doesn't, it looks easy, but it's not. So your (laughs) advice for other entrepreneurs? You know, when you're an entrepreneur, it's uh, it's a 24-7, 365 days a year role right it literally never stops and i think that if you want to be an entrepreneur if you want to do your own startup you have to go in with both feet and you have to love what you do because you're going to get you're going to spend a lot of time in it and if you don't love what you do it's it's not going to work out so i think passion plus time and commitment equals the winning formula love that and well that brings me to a, a quick one what are your three
2: principles that you live by
0: for me humility is is very important you know even if you're successful i think if you stay humble and you understand you know how you got there then you are, are able to keep that principle um very strongly the other thing is you know integrity integrity for me is what you do when no one watches it's what you do when no one's around basically and i think that if you have high integrity everything flows from there um if you don't then it's it's very difficult to succeed the last thing is um respect so i think i always believe in this you need to treat people the way that you want to be treated right and it's a very fundamental a concept, but it's not something that that everybody understands. Especially when you're successful, there's always that you know uh, temptation to change who you are or become different just because you, uh, you know, you're rich or you're you're more money now or you're more controlled. But I think um, respecting people is 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 um, one of the three things that I uh, value the most. Love it. And what will your legacy be when all is <laughs> said and done? What is Kimial's legacy? Oh, you know, I, I want to be a Filipina female leader or entrepreneur who was always like one of the first. So I always want to be like, so uh, one of our investors to Gobi actually told me, do you know that you're the Filipina founder who was raised the largest amount of venture capital? I said, I didn't know that, but thank you for letting me know. Right. So what would be my next, my next uh, superlative as a female Filipina founder? And if you put those two words together, like uh, three words, Filipina, female, and founder, it's very scarce. You don't get those three word combinations together in one person so i think that would be um yeah my legacy
2: yeah love that well and that's why you're here kim so we want to find ways <laughs> to support you but thank you so much for your time i thought this was thank you. intriguing it was exciting and and we went into some depth uh in the short amount of time that we had uh but yeah keep doing you and keep raising the bar for filipina female founders for female founders and founders in general
1: And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.